Hello, and welcome to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Shireen Hamza. And I'm Chris Grayton. We have a special episode for you today on the politics of diaspora in the Middle East. We're going to be looking far beyond the Middle East, however, all the way to communities stretching from North America to North Africa to East Asia. And this is a special episode, not just because we're going to feature multiple guests, within the confines of one particular episode, but also that all of these guests are students, either early stage PhD students, master students. In the case, in one case, we even have someone discussing his bachelor's degree thesis. Uh, so really looking at emerging topics and developing research uh, in our field. Our first interview is with Evan Le Espiritu about the Vietnamese diaspora in Israel. And after that, I'll be speaking with Margot Fatusi about her film project concerning the historically Jewish neighborhood of Tunis known as El Hara. Finally, we'll conclude the episode with an interview with Kais Kimji about the Ismaili community in Canada and the relationship with the Canadian government. I think these three conversations are going to go really well together. Uh, and that's why we've put them all into one episode. But if you just like standalone links for these individual conversations and don't want to listen to all three, you can just visit our website, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, where we've also got supplementary materials, bibliographies, and everything you need. Without further ado, here's Shireen's conversation with Evan Le Espiritu. Hello, and welcome to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Shireen Hamza, here with Evan Le Espiritu. Evan is a PhD candidate at UC Berkeley's Department of Rhetoric. Welcome to the podcast, Evan. Thank you so much for having me. As a part of your doctoral research, you've done research on the Vietnamese refugee diaspora. And as part of that, you've visited Vietnamese Israeli communities that currently reside in Israel and studied the history of this community post-1975. There are several hundred Vietnamese Israeli citizens living there right now in a country of over 8 million. So how did they come to be citizens of Israel? Thank you so much for your question. Um, I mean, I think it's a very interesting history. And part of the reason that people don't really know about this community yet is because it's actually very small. So as you mentioned, there's only several hundred of them now. Um, and in terms of the initial migration, Israel granted uh, asylum and then citizenship to 369 refugees mm. from 1977 to 1979. So over the course of actually three waves of asylum seekers. So the first wave has a very interesting story. So on June 6, 1977, a group of 66 Vietnamese escaped from Vietnam on boat. So this is sort of part of the sort of post-1975, after the Vietnam War, a lot of the refugees were fleeing uh, by boat. Mm -hmm. um, and so they were sort of floating on the South China Sea for four days and lots of ships sort of passed them. And usually they get picked up by, you know, a particular international ship eventually. In this case, um, they were picked up by an Israeli cargo ship, Yuvali, and the ship tried to drop them up at different uh, refugee camps in different places in Southeast Asia and Asia. Mm. So they went to Taiwan and Japan and Hong Kong, but all of these places actually refused to accept this group mm. of 66 refugees. So after that, um, newly elected 
Prime Minister, Menachem Begin, decided as his first official act of Prime Minister of Israel, he decided to actually absorb these Vietnamese refugees and take them to Israel. Wow. So he said, you know, he sympathized with the Vietnamese refugees because their plight, you know, really for him evoked memories of the Jews fleeing Nazi Germany and that they were being denied entry into other countries. There was a rhetoric of sort of a personal investment for this Jewish nation to sort of reach out and empathize with these Vietnamese refugees who were also fleeing by boat. This was the first time, actually, that Israel has received and absorbed a party of non-Jewish refugees. So it's a very exceptional case within Israeli asylum policy. And Israel normally gives no aid, sort of resettlement aid, to non-Jewish immigrants But actually, again, there was another exception. The Vietnamese were going to receive actually the same aid offered to Jewish newcomers. So Israel promised this group of Vietnamese refugees jobs, housing, lessons in Hebrew, and even citizenship after five years of naturalization, even though, like I said, they were not Jewish. So this sort of leads to then the second and third wave of refugees that come in 1979. Mm -hmm. So you know, the initial sort of case of the 66 Vietnamese refugees were seen as a very successful absorption, actually, into Israel. So the second wave was in sort of January 1979. Again, you sort of had a case of a rusty boat, uh, Tung An, and this was marooned actually this time in Manila Bay. So this sort of left, you know, over 2,000 refugees stranded. And Israel again sort of stepped in and they decided to absorb 102 of these refugees. So 15 families came to Israel and they were resettled in the agricultural valley of Afula. The third wave of refugees is actually quite different. And this is an interesting case as well, because instead of the other two cases in which you had refugees sort of picked up by boat, Mm -hmm. this refugee population was actually hand selected. Hmm. Um, So you had, you know, a sort of quota of Israel deciding to accept 200 more Vietnamese refugees. Mm -hmm. Um, And then you had an ambassador who sort of went around to the different refugee camps in Southeast Asia and decide which ones were eligible that Israel wanted to bring in. And here I think you sort of see Israel having preferences of who is actually coming to their country. Um, So, for example, there were some sort of discriminations based on hierarchies of ethnicity, class, um, and sexuality. So, for example, if you read sort of Israeli state archive documents, these ambassadors will say that they wanted refugees of ethnic Chinese origin. Um, So not ethnic Vietnamese origin or not people from Cambodia or Laos. Um, They were privileging sort of large nuclear families, not Mm -hmm. anybody who was an orphan or a widow necessarily. Mm -hmm. So overall, you know, I think that this is a very sort of exceptional case within Israel's history. Um, You know, not only were the Vietnamese the first non-Jewish refugees to be taken into the country and granted citizenship. um, But actually since then, in the decades since that case, Um, It's been quite an exception within Israeli asylum policy for Israel to offer asylum and citizenship to people who are non-Jewish. That's really fascinating. In explaining this process of selecting this this third wave of Vietnamese Israelis, what are the processes of racialization that the state employed and how do those carry through in the lives of Vietnamese Israelis since then? 
Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, you know, so the underlying question is why was the Vietnamese session exception within sort of Israel asylum policy, mm. right? Um, I mean, I think you see today, for example, that people from Sudan and Eritrea and Syria are trying to gain asylum in Israel in very large numbers. Um, and the way that the Vietnamese case comes up is very interesting um, because Israel more likely than not will deny asylum to contemporary asylum seekers. I see. However, they will do a sort of flip rhetorical move where whenever they get backlash um, for their sort of very strict asylum policies, they will say, oh, wait, well, please refer to this case of the Vietnamese refugees. We were actually, you know, this is a very benevolent sort of example within our history where we did sort of reach out to refugees. Um, so, you know, part of that, I think, is that they sort of Vietnamese refugees are sort of racialized in a particular way as sort of explaining or exemplifying Israel's self-narrative as a sort of multicultural Western democracy, mm. um, as a humanitarian democracy uh-huh. that is willing to offer um, asylum to people in need. So this narrative, um, I think, though, is sort of papers over one, again, Israel's sort of denial of asylum to contemporary asylum seekers, um, but also it denies the sort of history of displacement of Palestinians upon which sort of Israel was founded as a state and sort of continues um, to sort of displace and treat Palestinians as second class citizens within the borders of Israel, but also in the sort of occupied territories. How do the ways that Israel racializes Vietnamese Israelis differ from the way that it racializes Palestinians and Palestinian citizens of Israel? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think to sort of answer that question, there's sort of two loci that I want to address. One is how the sort of state racializes them. Mm -hmm. And two is how they sort of are racialized in sort of everyday interactions Mm. on the street, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So as I mentioned, I think in terms of the state, you know, the state really racializes Palestinians as the ultimate other, as the ultimate enemy, Um, And I think largely in comparing Vietnamese Israelis as um, respectively less of a threat to the country, you know, this was one reason that the Vietnamese Israelis could then be safely absorbed into Israel without sort of threatening um, the Jewish foundations or sort of a Jewish demographic majority. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's that, you know, sort of implicit comparison that's happening. In terms of how Vietnamese Israelis are sort of racialized in terms of everyday interactions in contemporary Israel, you actually have to look at another sort of case or context that there are a lot of domestic workers um, and temporary workers, sort of agricultural workers and construction workers um, from Southeast Asia and Asia now. Mm. Um, So largely from the Philippines and Thailand are the main uh, two countries that will send these temporary workers. And these workers do not have any access to naturalization or citizenship in Israel, but their numbers are much larger just demographically than the sort of numbers of Vietnamese Israelis. So sort of walking along the streets um, in sort of contemporary uh, Israeli cities, if you see an Asian looking person, um, most likely that person is sort of not naturalized, you know, sort of temporary worker who has no access to citizenship. So I think that Vietnamese Israelis are very often interpolated, you know, as sort of perpetual foreigners, Mm. um, as people who don't belong in this country, um, who are of lower class status. Um, And I think that really, you know, sort of affects their sort of psyche and their sense of belonging within Israel. There's a lot of great ethnographic scholarship coming out right now on temporary workers all across the Middle East, usually from either Southeast Asia or South Asia. And I think this is a fertile ground for further research. 
Since the Vietnamese Israelis are citizens of Israel on land that a lot of Palestinians face many barriers to entering, how does that reality find recognition among Vietnamese Israelis? And uh, are there any possibilities for solidarity between these groups, even though they're so differently marginalized by Israel? Yeah, that's a great question. I have a certain personal investment in sort of trying to locate if there's there a potential for solidarity between Vietnamese, Israelis and Palestine, given that both of these populations are marginalized by the Israeli state, albeit in different ways, um, they are sort of located at the margins of society Hmm. in many instances. Um, And I think it's very hard, and that's part of the reason that my dissertation is an interdisciplinary project, right? So one, there's a sort of ethnographic um, or sort of oral history interview component um, where I visited Israel-Palestine and sort of interviewed people and sort of saw, okay, sort of on the ground and how people articulate um, their sort of everyday lives, are they sort of articulating any potential for connections or identifications, you know, sort of across these racial divides? And in general, you know, I think that there's very little. Um, and I think part of it is because, you know, the sort of racialization in the state is so has been so successful that they don't really see commonalities between their two struggles. Wow. Um, so that, I think, again, sort of brings in the interdisciplinary component. So one way to sort of move past this is to one, look at history and to look at literature. Mm. Um, So part of my dissertation project is tracing a longer sort of pre-1975 history of third world revolution sort of relationships between Vietnam and Palestine um, as Vietnam was sort of going through, you know, its own independence movement and drawing rhetorical as well as material connections with the Palestinian decolonization movement. Um, So this is one sort of historical trajectory that, again, gets sort of overwritten by sort of international history narratives Mm -hmm. that I want to really recuperate as a way to really contextualize, you know, contemporary Vietnamese refugees who, it must be noted, don't necessarily share the ideology of the Vietnamese revolutionaries, such as Ho Chi Minh and their sort of communist rhetoric. Right. However, I do think that there's a sort of, you know, historical and ethnic connection there with these sort of Vietnamese communities and the diaspora. So that's one sort of way to sort of contextualize contemporary possibilities for solidarity. I think the other way that I mention is literature, right? And so part of my project, too, is looking at um, the poetry of, in particular, a Vietnamese-Israeli poet, Van Wing, um, who writes about her experience in Israel and sort of moments of displacement, um, but also sort of travel to different international cities, such as in Vietnam, but also in the United States and Europe, um, and sort of looking at her sort of affective displacement and sort of exile um, and trying to read that in relation to Palestinian accounts of exile by Mahmoud Darwish and Bergotti are two sort of authors that I really draw from. Um, and so is there a way that within sort of poetry that we can find, you know, sort of affective or thematic connections and maybe, you know, these things are not realized in the social realm yet. But if mm-hmm. we can sort of look at poetry um, as articulating things that we can't articulate yet, you know, in the social sphere, um, that's one way to sort of maybe say, OK, if we refer to the literary, that's one way that we can imagine different possibilities for our future. This has been wonderful, Evan. 
Can I also ask how it is that you chose this research project? Yeah, great. Um, as I mentioned earlier, you know, I do have a sort of personal investment in this project. Um, so I am a second generation Asian American, um, half Filipino and half Vietnamese. So my mom and grandmother were Vietnamese refugees who mm -hmm. came to the United States uh, in 1975. Um, and so I have been very inspired by their sort of personal history and their mm -hmm. strength. Um, and I'm very interested in sort of tracing other communities and other sort of circuits of Vietnamese refugee migration. Um, a lot of the sort of academic literature has focused on a U.S. context, um, and that is very understandable for largely demographic and historical reasons. I so see. most of the Vietnamese refugees did end up in the continental United States. Mm. Um so part of my project is just to sort of look at refugees that have perhaps been overlooked. And part of this is one of the communities is in Israel-Palestine. Um, the second sort of vector is that, you know, questions around Israel-Palestine and settler colonialism in Israel and sort of Palestinian liberation movements are very much at the forefront and very important now in this political moment. And doing this research was a way for me personally um, to sort of understand and begin to articulate my sort of investment and stakes in these very important questions. As I said, I'm very interested in sort of understanding if there are potentials for solidarity against, in general, groups that are differentially racialized, um, because mm -hmm. I think state racialization processes so often try to divide us. And this is my way to sort of articulate, you know, looking at history, looking at government documents, looking at literature and looking at sort of contemporary movements and moments, if there's a way that we can sort of get past or overcome these state racialization projects. Listeners might have also heard podcasts with Shira Robinson and with Yael Barda on this topic. And it's absolutely wonderful to have this slightly later historical perspective as well on race making in state formation in Israel-Palestine. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast, Evan. This was wonderful. Thank you so much for having me. Listeners who want to learn more about the Vietnamese-Israeli community can view the short bibliography that Evan has provided on our website, www.ottomanhistorypodcast.com. Well, Shireen, I really enjoyed listening to your conversation with Evan there. It's a really unique piece of research. Absolutely. The Vietnamese-Israeli community is one that I think changes the way that we think about labor, migration, and citizenship in the Middle East today. Evan touched on the sort of permanent exile that many Vietnamese-Israelis find themselves in, even though they have the status, the very privileged status of Israeli citizenship. They're constantly read as outsiders in their their country of residence. And I think that these sort of themes are really central to many studies of diaspora all over the world. And that theme of exile very much resonates with what I learned in my conversation with Margot Fatusi, uh, which looked at uh, the Jewish neighborhood of Tunis, in which now there are not very many permanent Jewish inhabitants. And in the film she made about that neighborhood, uh, she reflects on 
you know, these themes of diaspora, exile, uh, memory, identity, and all with the, within the, the framework of sort of post-colonialism. And uh, so we're going to hear a very short music clip, and then our listeners can look forward to my conversation with Margot Fatusi about her film, El Hara. Welcome to the Ottoman History Podcast. I'm Chris Grayton. In this installment, we're having a short conversation with a documentary filmmaker uh, about a film concerning the Jewish neighborhood of Tunis, which is known simply as Al-Hara. Our guest is Margot Fitoussi. She's just finished her MTS at Harvard University Divinity School, starting a PhD program in the anthropology department at Columbia. Margot, welcome to the program. Thank you. So congratulations. Well, congratulations on starting off at Columbia, a very interesting place to study anthropology, but also congratulations on the release of this short documentary about El Hara. So for our listeners, um, the film that we're going to be discussing, and the link is available on our website, it's uh, exploring questions of identity, memory, and colonialism through the sites of El Hara with sort of images of the neighborhood today in Tunis, interspliced with really fascinating little clips of interview with the mega figure of post-colonial theory, Albert Memmi. We'll talk about the film in just a minute, but first we want to set up the historical context. Okay. Uh, Margot, if you could briefly tell us about the history of El Hara, the, the, the Jewish neighborhood of Tunis, the historically Jewish neighborhood of Tunis. So Hara in Arabic means neighborhood, right? but in Tunisia it specifically refers to the Jewish neighborhood. So you find Haras in Tunis, you find them in Jerba, which is an island in the south, mm. different cities all over the country. Um, so my family comes from the heart of Tunis, so that's why I wanted to focus on this specific neighborhood. And so it was um, started being settled in the 13th century. So you had the Jews from Kerouan, and then you had those leaving from the Almohads. And then you had um, those leaving from Spain, and then later from Italy. So mm -hmm. it was a slow uh, migration of Jews from all over all over the Mediterranean. So it wasn't delineated in the same way that maybe the Jewish neighborhoods in Europe were. Mm -hmm. um, and that's something that people still talk about today. And that yeah. came up a lot um, when I was there this summer. What do you mean by that? So first off, um, the Hara is within this, the old city, as yeah. opposed to the Melech in Morocco, which are outside of the old city. Yeah, I see. Um, and that's pretty unique in the Arab world. Mm -hmm. You know, of course, people lived within... Uh, within a neighborhood, but the walls were more porous. Mm -hmm. So you did have people, especially as people were migrating to the city, Jews were migrating, you'd had people, the boundaries kept expanding. Right. And at its height during the, I guess, the colonial period in Tunis, mm -hmm. under French co colonial rule, how many uh, Tunisian Jews were living in El Hara? I should say about 110,000 Jews were living in Tunisia in right. total. Uh, but of course, you know, 
most often find Jew- the Jewish communities in urban centers. Mm-hmm. Um, so in Tunis, in the 1950s, one in five people were Jewish. But at that time, in the 1950s, most of the Jewish community had moved out of the Hara uh, into different neighborhoods, coastal neighborhoods, into the European quarters. Right. You already see this sort of urban transformation that occurs as the the cities of the Mediterranean grow Mm -hmm. quite substantially during the first half of the 20th century. Exactly. And also in the 1930s, the French had sort of programmed that this neighborhood, the Hara, uh, which was part of the Medina, the old mm-hmm. city would be uh, should be renovated, and so they started knocking down walls, these you know small alleys, and wanted to had a whole big plan to rebuild yeah. this neighborhood. And then you know they ran out of money. Some members of the Jewish community pushed back, didn't want certain you know mm-hmm. the Talmudic school, for instance, to yeah. be destroyed. And then World War II happened, and so this neighborhood was kind of in shambles for for a really long time. Yeah. Oh, okay. So, and, and recently, I guess it's been re-renovated under the government of Tunisia. Yeah, post-independence, and then again in the 70s and 80s. And so, you know, this neighborhood is no longer referred to as the Hara, it's referred to as the Hafsia, um, which in the Hafsia includes a much broader swath. And and most of the Jews living in Tunisia also moved to France. Like Mm -hmm. the Jewish communities of of Tunisia under the French, most of them went to France, or what happened? What became uh, of these communities? So there was a series of my, you know, waves of migration out yeah. of Tunisia. In total, about half went to Israel and then half went to France. Oh, so most of my family went to France, um, but you know, you had people leaving after after forty eight, sixty one, which was uh, this big battle between the French and the Tunisians mm-hmm. in the desert. Um, after sixty seven, right. and it kind of goes on from there. Mm. So now you have about. 300 people, 300 Tunisian Jews who live right. in Tunis, um, essentially full-time, and then you have people that come back and right. forth. Right. But the film doesn't actually deal so much with that sort of narrative history of Hara, but rather representation, as, as we said, issues of colonialism and, and identity and memory. And um, so you, you already mentioned that your family was originally from there, but you know, how did you get the idea to make this film? What was the, what was the inspiration was it, I mean, it's a beautiful neighborhood. If you mm. look at the video, like the, the the shots are really impressive, and I'm sure that you were helped out at least a little bit by the charisma of the neighborhood itself. Mm-hmm. But maybe you could tell us more about your your process or how you got started on this. Yeah, I mean, a very personal process in the sense that I was trying to understand my family and yeah. why they left. Um, so I started reading Albert Memmi's The Pillar of Salt, which I believe came out in 1953, so yeah. right before Tunisian independence in '56. And yeah, this kind of sparked some ideas. I talked to my friend Mo Scarpelli, who's a filmmaker, and mm-hmm. we started kind of, you know, dialoguing about what what would a movie about this neighborhood be like, you know, especially through the lens of um, someone like Albert Memmi, who is now 96 years old, right, um, and still writing every day. And so I got in touch with him, and he agreed um, to let me interview him and right. make this film. Right, the film has two protagonists. As if mm-hmm. for for the listeners who check out the Vimeo link on our website, they'll find, of course, the protagonist of the neighborhood. But then Albert Memmi, who's who's on video with you, I guess, in interviews, talking about some of his, uh, you know, his ideas, his writings, and memories. Let's talk more about Albert Memmi as a he's sort of a unique figure in the history uh, of literature and, and uh, thought in North Africa. Why did you choose uh, Elber Memi as one of, as your like kind of main interview subject for this thing? Yeah. Um, 
Well, one, because I love the Pillar of Salt so much. Yeah. As you mentioned, the colonizer and the colonized. And he's been writing for 60 years, right? Yeah. And so he's a novelist, an essayist. He's also yeah. was a professor of sociology in France. Um, so there's a lot to draw from for yeah. this for this film. And he's also possibly the most important Tunisian writer of um, of the 20th century. Certainly. And, you know, he was 96. He was born in 1920. So he remembers. And he was born in the Hara. And so most of the intellectuals, Tunisian Jewish intellectuals were born outside this neighborhood. So he's pretty unique in the sense that he he was able to describe to me, you know, what this neighborhood looked like, talk to me about his mother and his father. You know, his father was a saddle maker who was fluent in Maltese and Italian and Arabic and French. And, um, you know, his mother only spoke Tunisian Arabic and kind of what that experience was like for him and for his, for his many siblings. Was there anything about your conversations that helped you understand better uh, sort of Elbert Memmi's trajectory and how life in the Hara kind of influenced him hmm. in his writings. So he has a pretty tenuous relationship with this neighborhood, yeah. which he you know, explores uh, in a lot of depth in The Pillar of Salt. Right. Um, so Memmi is interesting because he received this French education, received a scholarship um, to study in French schools. So he's, I think Albert Camus in the int introduction of the book talks about how you know, Tunisian Jews are are exist in this sort of imprecision between right. French and Tunisia, and and he encapsulates that really well. I kept pushing on, uh, pushing and you know trying to understand what his relationship to this place was like, and then yeah. finally said, "Listen, Margot, I, you know, of course this place formed me. That's where I grew yeah. up, but that's not the place that I returned to in the summers. Yeah, you interesting. Know, when I returned to Tunisia, I'd go to the beach, I'd go to Sidi Bou Said and La Goulette, and you know." Loved the Mediterranean. He told me it was his lemonade. He was never inspired by the cold Atlantic. Um, <laughs> Interesting. But yeah, for him, the Hara was very much a place to to leave. So you had the sense that El Bermemi's relationship to El Hara is somewhat ambivalent, or you know, there's mixed feelings there. Yeah, it's a perfect word to describe his relationship to this place, but also to Tunisia more broadly. Um, so he was involved, you know, with some of the independence movement. Mm -hmm. um, he had a really hard time finding a job as a professor in Tunisia later, which is why he ended up be, uh, moving to France. Yeah. And, you know, he expressed some of those feelings to me during our interview. But at the same time, when I returned back back to Paris that, that at the end of the summer to show him a cut of the film and, you know, to, talk, to hang out with him a bit, uh, he was so curious about what was happening in Tunisia uh. and asking me what's going on with the Jewish community. What does the Hara look like? Were people interested in the exhibition about the Jews? Like, what are they saying? What are Tunisians talking right. about? Um, which, which I found surprising, especially in light of the way he was, you know, speaking about Tunisia right. earlier and as this place that okay, the Hara, yeah, of course, this is a place I grow up to, but Margot, that's not where I right. But that bitterness makes to. sense given the experience, and yet mm. you can't feel so bitter, I guess if you don't really still care about the place. So mm -hmm. it kind of makes sense in a way that that reaction. Yep. And I guess it also, the whole project would have jogged a lot of memories for him because he's, he's done many things since mm -hmm. since he left Al Hara. And he kept asking me, why are you interested in this? Like, what do you, what do you find so fascinating about it? And he calls me the Hara girl. Like, <laughs> <laughs> he found that very curious. And he told me, you're not a child of the Hara, you know, maybe your grandparents were, maybe your father has a piece of you, uh -huh. but you're much more, you're an American, you're, you're, you know, you're French. Um, but there's a piece of you of, of this place that, that you carry. But he was pretty resounding, you know, that I wasn't a child of the Hara. <laughs> I and I said, see. I'm pretty sure that I'm not either. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, it's a film that could, and I've seen it done elsewhere 
be laden with a lot of nostalgia, right? Because it's it's an attractive uh, neighborhood and because it has this memory of, a, of, of something that is lost. But uh, the, your film, and especially with Albert Memi, Memi interspliced, it's, it's really not that kind of uh, depiction of uh, nostalgia and, you know, sort of fond memory. Uh, well, nostalgia is a tricky, right. tricky subject, right? I, I'm a lot of Tunisian Jews, I'm speaking mostly from my family's experience, have this complicated relationship to Tunisia. So you see this nostalgia in the food and the songs that people listen to, yeah. in the languages they speak at home. Um, but then at the same time, when you ask people, would you move back to Tunisia? You know, would you move back to the Jewish neighborhood in La Goulette or the Haaretz? Uh, pretty resounding no. Right. Um, and so that's that's kind of what I wanted, to, what we wanted to explore in this right. film. Right, and show how space is... is it's not just shaped by buildings and sort of place, but it's also shaped by the relationships. And, and Tunisia mm -hmm. has changed so much over that last century that, mm -hmm. you know, it's no longer the same place. What would you be going back to, right? If, if you're thinking about it from the perspective of an old inhabitant who had moved away. Exactly. And we interviewed, and this wasn't part of the film, but we did yeah. a lot of interviews with Tunisian Jews who now live in Belleville, mm -hmm. which was where a lot of the, uh, the neighborhood in Paris where a lot of the Tunisian Jews and Muslims lived. Also a very attractive neighborhood very, of Paris, so cool not, not too shabby. <laughs> and um, when they talk about Tunisia, you know, it's very much tinged with this nostalgia. But at the same time, when they talk about returning, they, the first thing they talk about is how small everything is. Yeah. It's so tiny, especially after living in Marseille in Paris. Mm. And so, uh, so the film originally was part of this exhibition that I curated yeah. about the Jewish neighborhood in Tunis, um, which we held in the Medina in what was formerly the Hara, which was really a huge success and a lot of fun to to curate and the man who loaned me his photographs has been collecting everything related to Tun tunisian jury for the past 40 years mm. it's a really special character wow. and when we walked around tunis i mean i felt like he was trying to impart this you know this knowledge that he'd had collected over the last 40 years as if i could be the one to continue his mission yeah. um and that's all he did is pointing out oh here's where you know this is where the Fitusis lived, and this is where the Maimuns lived, and and you know this is this restaurant, this Jewish restaurant. This was an apartment that belonged to Jews. Blah 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 blah, and he kept going on and on and on. Um, and it was through him that I could, you know, imagine what this place must have been like 50 years ago. So I guess uh, making a documentary film is actually pretty good preparation for like anthropological field work in a way because you. And, and it certainly gives a, a different perspective, right, than, than the endeavors of, like I say, an academic anthropologist mm -hmm. in, in terms of representation and, and what, what you're looking for. And I like to see a documentary film that's kind of influenced by also that academic reading of the past that really does bring, it shows how, you know, it, it does bring some nuance, right, to, to the story. And I'm wondering uh, what you're planning on doing with, is this, is this project on, El Hara, a continuing project of yours of, of further investigation, whether in terms of academic research or other types of um, art and, and film, or uh, where are you going with it? Well, first off, so we're doing film festival circuit right now. Yeah. Um, so the film is opening at the Atlanta Film Festival uh, April 1st, and then it'll be going to Toronto, Washington, D.C., Washington, several other places. Mm -hmm. um, and then, you know, after that, we'll release it this summer. And I... I don't know, what I really enjoyed most about this project was engaging with these texts in a very different way than you mm -hmm. would maybe in the classroom. No, and that's what I thought while I was watching. I thought that this would be a really great companion mm. to some of the reading you do in classroom and really 
give students who have never had the chance to visit such a place. I've never been to mm. Tunis, for example, but I've read a lot about Tunis and and to be able to see the place and and and, and memories of the place uh, sort of intertwined with the reading of its history, um, the history of colonialism, uh, the history of of loss, I guess, in, in the case of um, you know a neighborhood where essentially none of the original inhabitants, their descendants, most of them don't live there anymore. I was definitely looking forward to using it someday with mm. students if, when I Thank teach a you. class on colonialism. And I, I love to see projects like this. Yeah, I mean, that's what we were hoping for. Obviously, you can't ex you know, explain the history of a community in 15 minutes, but you hope that you give people the desire to do more research and dig a bit more and maybe take up books, you know, Ad Bermemi's books and, uh, and explore further. Yeah, it's, it's, it's only a 15-minute film. So for our listeners who do have the chance to check it, check it out, I do recommend it. I think it's concise and beautifully shot. Um, and it's a different way of engaging with the history of Tunisia and, and, and the Middle East and North Africa, as we've been saying. Um, so you will have it publicly online. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's, it's available on our website, uh, ottomanhistorypodcast.com, where you also find a short reading list and uh, other episodes related to our subject. Uh, thanks for coming on, Margot. I love talking to filmmakers and, and artists and different people who are engaging with history uh, beyond the Academy. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Good luck. And uh, thank you to our listeners for tuning in and join us next time. Chris, I haven't been able to sit down and watch Al-Hara yet, but I'm really looking forward to it. Yeah, it's a nice film. And when I saw it, I thought that it had a lot of great pedagogical applications, that it could actually be something to uh, show to students in the classroom. And of course, Margot herself is now just starting her PhD in anthropology, and she produced this film while she was doing her master's here at Harvard. But just to find examples of projects like these in which really early stage students who are in the beginning of their own academic explorations are able to contribute uh, to pedagogy and teaching and materials to be used by their fellow students is really an encouraging thing to see and something that I really took away from my conversation with Margot and of course watching her film. I can see that, Chris, and it's something that absolutely applies to our next interviewee, Kais Kimji, who is still an undergraduate student. Yes, I, I'll mention for our listeners that I had been asked to be a chair of an undergraduate thesis panel uh, at the Weatherhead Center at Harvard University, and Kais was one of the participants. And after hearing his very good presentation, I thought that he would make a great addition to this trifecta of new topics uh, in the study of diaspora and politics. Without further ado, we give you Kais's work on the politics of Ismaili communities in Canada and the relationship between the Aga Khan and the Canadian government. Hello, and welcome back to the Ottoman History Podcast. My name's Shireen Hamza, and I'm here today with Kais Kimji. Kais is a senior undergraduate student at Harvard College, studying Islamic modernism and Western thought. His thesis is titled Canada and the Ismaili Imamat, Multicultural Nationalism and Transnational Muslim Diplomacy. Kais, thanks for being on the podcast today. For sure. Happy to be here. Kais, can you tell us a, a little bit more about the Ismaili community living in Canada? For sure. So just as a, a brief background, 
The Ismailis are a denomination of Shia Muslims who follow His Highness the Aga Khan IV. Uh, the Aga Khan is their current imam, um, and he's a direct descendant of the Prophet. The Ismailis were originally uh, scattered throughout Asia, specifically South Asia, Central Asia, in the Middle East, and began to form outposts, diasporic outposts uh, throughout Africa, and, and specifically Af- East Africa, Uganda, Tanzania, Kenya, Rwanda. They came with the British during British colonialism, and uh, following decolonization in the 60s and 90s, um, and the rise of sort of African nationalism, the experience of uh, South Asian Ismailis in East Africa is, is quite particular, and especially in Uganda. There's a dictator in Uganda named Idi Amin, who in 1972 decides to expel all South Asians from the country and gives them about 90 days to leave the to leave, um, and you know, without any belongings. Yeah, as dramatized in the movie Mississippi Masala. Yes. Also in uh, The Last King of Scotland, it's, it's told really well too. So essentially, Canada agrees to accept about 6,000 Ugandan Asian refugees, many of whom are, are Ismaili, about 70% of, of the 6,000. And so this is really the beginning of the story of, of how the Ismailis get to Canada. They come as Ugandan Asian refugees. Upon arrival in Canada in the early 70s, they immediately uh, are sort of welcomed with open arms and a number of committees are formed to help them integrate uh, fluently into Canadian society. And this really actually isn't um, too much of a problem because in East Africa, the Ismailis were, you know, they went to Aga Khan schools, uh, schools created by their imam, which were sort of, uh, you know, intentionally taught in English. Ismailis were encouraged to adopt different um, Euro-African norms, so they're quite comfortable with some of the Western norms, you know, specifically dress, language, culture that they encountered when they got to Canada. So the integration story is is, is quite fluid. Um, and throughout the 70s and 80s, further waves of um, East African Ismailis begin to arrive in Canada as immigration policies continue to, to liberalize mm-hmm. throughout the global north. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for example, my father is from Tanzania. My mother is from Kenya, and they both immigrated in the mid-70s and, and met in Canada. And I'm a second-generation Canadian. Today, there are about 100,000 Ismailis in Canada. And Wow. The yeah the the sixty thousand sort of South Asians a large percentage of them from East, East Africa some started to come directly from South Asia to Canada as policies continued to liberalize they were also joined by a number of Afghan Ismailis so essentially in the the nineteen nineties the Aga Khan was able to create a channel for Ismaili Afghan refugees to resettle in Canada and and specifically in Quebec through this channel which is today you know exists in the form of an organization called focused humanitarian assistance, about 10,000 um, Afghans have been resettled in Canada. And, and this is particularly interesting because um, Afghanistan has a number of, of displaced refugees and very few countries in the 90s were accepting right. Afghan refugees. Right. And so the demographic makeup of the Ismailis in Canada today is about um, 60% South Asians, 30% um, Afghan, and then about 10% Iranian, Tajik, um, other parts of Central Asia, uh, you know, other Arabs. I know that this must vary because it's such a diverse community, but historically, how has the experience of the Ismaili community in Canada changed? Right from the get-go when they arrived, there was um, a process of gradual institutional development. They begin creating Jamath Khanas. So Jamath Khanas are Ismaili houses of prayer, mm-hmm. um, but they're also sort of community centers. So one of the 
Ismaili centers, which is the term for sort of a high-profile Jamaat Khanna, is created in, in Burnaby, uh, Burnaby, British Columbia, in the 80s. And the Prime Minister of Canada at the time, Brian Mulroney, is invited to sort of speak. And um, right, right from the get-go, the Ismailis really tried to participate in mainstream society, economically, socially, politically. But they also you know, make a large effort to preserve some of the spiritual, religious, or even cultural norms that they're bringing with them. Mm. And so the, the story, I would say, is, is one of gradual institutional development um, that really escalates in the, in the 21st century. And specifically around 2005 onward, the past decade, things have really started to become interesting from, um, from a, you know, a top-down perspective, the number of partnerships that are formed with the government. But I would say within the Ismaili community itself, there's been you know, a healthy amount of economic success and also political success. So there's a number of sort of a healthy number of Ismaili Canadian politicians. Um, mm-hmm. The mayor of Calgary, Nahid Anenshi, is uh, in an Ismaili, Murad Velshi, uh, Mabina Jaffer, Raheem Jaffer, um, Yasmin Ratansi, um, Nurjan Mawani. There's a number of Ismaili individuals who are really, really sort of managing to achieve um, high positions in Canadian society, not even not only within government, but also in the private sector. Really interesting article in BC Business, British Columbia Business, that profiles the richest Smiley families in Canada and the way capital sort of flows within this this community. Also, a lot of charity work. The World Partnership Walk, which raises millions of dollars every year, um, it, it plays a plays a big role. The Smiley Walk for Kids and and also the Aga Khan Foundation Canada, which does a, a number of development projects throughout the world rooted in in Canada. How has the Aga Khan himself? actively played a role in shaping the way that the Ismaili community in Canada is able to build these institutions? So I think this is particularly what makes the Ismaili case so interesting is the fact that there is this central figure around which the entire community um, is is organized. Right from the get-go, when Ugandan refugees were sort of rendered stateless, one of the factors that contributed to their, you know, their migration to Canada was the Aga Khan's personal relationship with Pierre Trudeau, mm. the current uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's father. And beyond that, um, today the Aga Khan actually has honorary Canadian citizenship granted to him by uh, Stephen Harper in 2010. Mm-hmm. His name is on a number of institutions as well, the, the Aga Khan Museum. He's recently just donated a $25 million park to the University of Alberta. He's created a number of different programs throughout Canada. And so his role in Canadian society, his visibility, um, you know, I feel like he's sort of become a household name, if you mention the Aga Khan to to any Canadian. Um, I feel like it's a name that they would at least somewhat recognize, if not just from seeing it on the name of a building, um, from at least, you know, hearing about it in the news. I think he has done done a good job of of guiding Ismailis insofar as they've navigated their experience in a new country. He's encouraged them to, you know, participate in mainstream society. Um, he himself participates widely and is received like a foreign diplomat. And, you know, today there's actually um, an Ismaili embassy, the Ismaili delegation of the Imamate. It's a de facto embassy that exists on Sussex Drive alongside all the other embassies. And there is actually... Um, a formal agreement and a protocol signed between the Ismaili imamate and the Canadian government. And hmm. so the the way the Ismaili community has been recognized in Canada, um, you know, the community itself is is sort of part and parcel of the way this institutional development has taken course and how this partnership has really flourished. Can you tell us a little more about that protocol? Yeah, for sure. So a lot of these documents uh, haven't actually been 
academically um, researched. So from the beginning, um, the Aga Khan has been creating protocols. The Ismaili Imamath, the institution of the Imam, has been you know signing and, and drafting protocols with different countries and institutions. So there are protocols that exist with universities. There are protocols that exist with banks. There are protocols that exist with countries as diverse as Norway and Brazil, where you know, virtually no Ismailis exist. Mm. The, the efforts to enshrine relationships and, and articulate them in the language of the law has really played a large role in, in formalized relations. Mm. And so in 2014, um, Prime Minister Stephen Harper invited uh, His Highness Yaga Khan to speak and address the, the Canadian Parliament, the first ever religious leader to do so. And directly after this address, a protocol of agreement was signed between the federal Canadian government and the Ismaili Imamate that essentially formalized everything that had gone on prior, um, you know, different diplomatic um, di- diplomatic privileges, you know, visas, um, you know, licenses, all the sort of things you would see in a standard treaty, hmm. um, but also really set the groundwork for diversification of the partnership. So to move into other areas such as interfaith dialogue, um, private sector opportunities, um, you know, and, and one may sort of wonder what exactly is, um, you know, a Muslim imam doing, um, dealing with like a Western government in terms of, of trade, especially, you know, one that isn't really rooted in, in any state or doesn't have any land. And right. a really important thing to, to mention here is the Aga Khan Development Network, the AKDN, which is this sprawling body of institutions underneath the imam that has, um, that has its feet in many parts of the world. Um, specifically Asia and Africa. And so the ability to leverage transnational partnerships um, to find areas of, of mutual benefit has been super important to creating these uh, joint relations. How do you think that these um, protocols have found a life on the ground? They're very much in their early days. So uh, the first one to be signed with Canada at the sort of higher level of government was with the um, the government of Alberta. And then the federal protocol was signed. And then recently there's one signed with um, the government of Ontario. And so we sort of see the imamate plugging itself into Canadian society at various levels, you know, national, um, provincial, um, the, the you know, at the level of tertiary institutions, different hospitals have agreements and stuff. So the way this plays out on the ground, I think, is um, it creates a foundation for different programs to be launched. So, so to cite the Ontario agreement specifically, the agreement sculpts the, um, the, the foundation for a teacher exchange program where Ontario-trained teachers go to Aga Khan academies in Africa and teach there. Mm. Um, and there's also the, frame, you know, the framework laid for um, different universities in Ontario accepting students um, free of tuition or sort of with subsidized tuition from developing countries or from you know, specifically Aga Khan academies developing countries. And so this this ability to um, leverage human capital as well is is an important part in addition to institutional capital. And so also like the Aga Khan University, a really big medical institution, is, is able to send some of its students to um, McGill or other medical schools throughout Canada. Where is that based, the Aga Khan Aga University? Aga Khan University. So one of the main campuses is, is in Karachi and Pakistan, but there are satellite campuses in East Africa as well. And it's one of the most prominent, um, you know, medical schools in, in the developing world. Um, so the ability to leverage its relationships with a country like Canada is, is, is huge. And a lot of it comes from um, a long-term vision that is the, ground, the groundwork for which is set out in these formalized relations. Do you find that these 
relationships that the Aga Khan is formalizing with the countries in the global north also play a role with his relationships with countries in the global south? Interesting. I think so. I think so. Um, insofar as a lot of the ability to contribute to to Canada. So I, I want to emphasize that these relationships are always mutually beneficial. So um, if, if, if only one party is gaining, the, it's tough for the, you know, actually people to sign an agreement such as this. So right. I'll point to one specific example. Recently, um, the Canadian uh, the Canadian government signed an agreement with the Aga Khan Council in Kenya um, to, to sort of ensure uh, disaster relief resources so that if there's some sort of like uh, natural disaster or any, any type of emergency that takes place, the Canadian government can access the Aga Khan uh, council's resources in Kenya um, in order to ensure the safety of perhaps Canadian citizens there or just enable their own foreign development efforts. And so I think uh, another big piece of this is the Aga Khan's role in development. And, mm-hmm. you know, it's sort of a, a chicken and egg. The more credibility he builds in one part of the world, the more um, the more capital he has to human capital, financial capital, um, just clout in general to to leverage those partnerships in other parts of the world. So I definitely think they, they both contribute to each other. Mm-hmm. How did you get interested in this project? A lot of it comes from my experiences growing up um, as an Ismaili in Canada and trying to wrap my head around what that experience meant. You know, my knee-jerk reaction was, when I was approaching my senior thesis was to do ethnographic work to understand the experiences of individual Ismailis. But my, my thesis advisor, Professor Ali Asani, leading Ismaili scholar, um, really, really um, guided me in this and... Uh, he right right from when I got to Harvard, he um, sort of you know took me under his wing in many ways. I, I took his class freshman year. I'd say he's very central to my intellectual development. Um, and as we were sort of uh, spitballing different ideas for my senior thesis, the idea of of analyzing different agreements that have never been touched by academic research and speaking to different smiley institutional leaders who mm-hmm. have never really been spoken to in, ter- in, in an academic setting, and, and especially because the community is quite centralized. Um, a lot of information lies with the, a, a small number of people, at least mm. institutionally speaking. Mm-hmm. And so to, to speak to them and hear their insights and organize that information as a resource for others, um, I think was a, was a big inspiration for me in taking on this project. Great. Thank you so much for talking to us about it, Kais. 100%. Super happy. Thanks for all your questions. Um, listeners who would like to learn more about this topic can look at the Ottoman History Podcast website, www.ottomanhistorypodcast.com, where Kais has kindly provided us with a short bibliography and some images. Thanks for tuning in and see you next time. Well, Shireen, thanks for recording that interview. And of course, we wish the best of luck to Kais as he continues in his education and career. I think this was a great set of conversations, all about very different places and very different people, all very niche in a way, but all speaking to very important themes uh, in the global history of migration during the 20th and 21st century uh, and touching on some of the tensions we find in conversations surrounding identity and politics of identity uh, particularly in the Middle East and with regard to the Middle East's connection uh, to Western countries as well. Absolutely, Chris. One thing that emerged from my discussions with Evan before we recorded the interview was that her own work is really grounded in the deep work that has been done by her advisors on Jewish diaspora. 
So although she's not working with the Jewish population, so many of the themes and so many of the emotive state states of the people who are part of a diaspora overlap greatly between their work and hers. Yeah, and it tied together really well with my conversation with Margot about Tunisian Jews and uh, the spaces they used to inhabit and how they remember them and how it's related to the larger legacy of colonialism uh, in Tunisia and also how through the figure of Elbert Memi, uh, we can see how history and memory continues to connect Tunisia to France long after the end of colonial rule, uh, especially through communities such as the Jewish diaspora there. Geis's work is very interesting in conversation with these other two interviews because he's really looking at an ongoing diaspora, unlike the case of the Vietnamese-Israeli community, which had a very particular moment. And his work really focuses on not only the way that being in Canada shapes the Ismaili community, but how engaging with the Ismaili community as a political actor changes the Canadian government. And all three of our student guests really shared something that I'm envious of and hope to actually do more of in the future, was that they all went out there Absolutely. and did field works of, of different varieties uh, that really offered uh, a different subjectivity for understanding the politics of diaspora, which is too often discussed uh, through the uh, implicit biases of states or majoritarian populations in countries where migrants reside. Uh, and I hope we can bring more of that flavor to future episodes uh, in our ongoing explorations of these topics. Me too, Chris. Well, thanks to our listeners for tuning in and enjoying this three-part episode on emerging topics in the study of politics of diaspora in the Middle East. Those who want to learn more about this topic can check out the bibliography we've provided on our website, www.ottomanhistorypodcast.com. 